Hey everyone, welcome to What Are You Watching? I'm Alex Wither, and I'm joined as always by Nick Dostal. How you doing there, Rock? Oh, I'm excited to be here. Damn right, 1999. We got a we got a good one today. We're both giddy. We're both excited. Um, 99, an objectively great year for movies. Arguably the best movie year of my lifetime. I was born in 1985, so top five movie years of my lifetime. 91, 99. 2007 2007 2011 maybe 2019 that's really new but last year was good 2019 is a great year but the best of all that is 99 because to me this year represents the spirit of indie films finally being recognized in a major major way toward the end of the 80s american independent cinema started to seriously announce itself specifically with do the right thing and sex lies and videotape in 1989 they dominated the conversation, the movie conversation that year. Uh, they were both nominated for the Palme d'Or, Sex, Lies, and Videotape won. And then after that, throughout the 90s, one or two smaller films would pop up in a given year and kind of take that year over, like Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, uh, Leaving Las Vegas, Sling Blade, Goodwill Hunting. And it all led up to 1999 when so many damn directors just coincidentally released amazing movies in the same year and it's it's just nuts i mean what does 99 mean to you it's crazy because um when you brought up the topic of this year i was just sort of like okay just you know and then when i dove in and i was looking at all the movies that actually came out this year i was like holy shit this is actually it's crazy i i had it's insane there were some movies that i knew were 1999 but then there were others that i was like wait that couldn't have been 1999 too and it was so yeah everything you're saying is right on the money um and it's what's really cool is we talk a lot about movies that um hold up mm-hmm. it's very very um interesting to see how many of these actually hold up this is a very cool year to go back to and um celebrate and to kind of maybe like bring up some gems that people have never seen because this year was packed with them. That leads me to my next point because 1999 is a game-changing movie year for independent cinema. That's one way to handle this list. Another way to handle it is inversely, there are a number of major studio films from 1999 that are just really good. So yeah. big or small studio or indie 1999 had it. And we're going to list our favorites. We left our lists up to our own interpretation. Mine personally, I approach it as if I had to give 10 movies to someone that represent the year 1999 and its full scope, these are the 10 I would recommend. These movies to me really nail the importance of 1999 and how important that year was to film as a medium and i can i can kick it off i can go first we're, we did rank these in preference we should say we're going 10 to 1 this is one we wearing this is a list my first one which i'm really excited to list it was not going to be on my list before but i rewatched it two days ago the talented mr ripley Oof. that fucking thing holds up way better than i remembered and the sexual dynamics of it were a little loss on me in 99 and i just get it now like jude law is so fucking attractive in that movie (laughs) and we we talked about this on the last episode it's that is a performance where you see a star being born and it's like this guy who i'd seen god i don't even know what i'd seen jude law but that was such a deliberate announcement and then Anytime we can shout out philip seymour hoffman on the podcast we must and absolutely freddie freddie (laughs) 
<laughs> Freddie and the talented Mr. Ripley is just is great. Every line of his, I don't want to repeat some of his lines. No, but... you got to, you got to, you got to talk about the op- the opening line. Oh my god! Because I want to say something about this. I, that will get me in trouble. Are you fucking <laughs> kidding? Oh, okay. I'm so glad you brought that movie up, and I'm so glad you brought up that particular performance because I always find it interesting the first line of a character we meet Mm -hmm. because you can tell a lot about it. And with a line like that, you know this person, or maybe you don't know them, but you get a sense of them immediately. Damn right. What do you got first? I'm going to start with a movie that's near and dear to my heart. I think it's a blast. I think it's an absolute fucking ride. And I think it's also a great example of 1999. And that's Go. Oh, I'm so happy you mentioned Go. Yeah, oh. that was that was one of the ones that just barely missed my list. Go, Doug Lyman, awesome. You know, this was a cast too. Like when you put together like a time period, not a lot of these actors became megastars or anything like that. But if you were alive and you know relevant to what was out there in the world in 1999. This movie was a star-studded list of young Hollywood. You had Katie Holmes from Dawson's Creek. You had Scott Wolf from Party of Five. Jay Moore, who was real big then. Timothy Oliphant from Scream 2. Timothy Oliphant <laughs> from Scream 2. And one of my favorite Timothy Oliphant performances. Is- I fucking love that performance. Are you a virgin, Claire? I love that performance. Oh, my God. Sarah Pauly, Um, I mean, the great William Fickner. Uh, I mean, he's kind of timeless. I'm not going to relegate him to 1999. And it takes a lot from its era. Like, there's a lot of Pulp Fiction in there. I know a lot of people give that movie some shit for that. I don't agree with it. It's vastly different. It's just the way that that movie moves and the fun in every single scene that's in there. It's impossible to not have fun in that movie. I love it. I think it's just classic late 90s. Fun ride. My one thing that I want to say about that movie is I saw that movie in the theater with my mother. It was great. My parents did not have really restrictions on what I could watch. And the second it was done, she wanted to see it again because she loved the magic car ride chase sequence in Vegas so much. And and then when it came out on DVD, I got her a copy and she would just watch that fucking scene. <laughs> like I would see her putting it in and she would just watch elated. Like she loved the magic car ride chase scene. And it's great. It's great. It's so great. And it's one of the best examples of songs in a movie, like the way it's used. You can hear it building up when they're in the parking garage. You can yeah. hear it, And then it just, boom, as soon as they come out, it explodes. Oh, I love it. Oh, there's a question for you. What's your favorite story? It's the, it's the Vegas one. I think a lot like Swingers, I think Doug Lyman made two good L.A. movies that their best portions of which take place in Vegas. <laughs> the Vegas segment with... Simon, Tay Diggs, Brecklin Meyer, it's, I, I, I just love everything about it. It moves. I mean, the way Tay Diggs plays into that fucking jacket and that guy yes. just tossing him the keys. He's like, keep it up front. And he does not miss a beat. And nope. he looks at, he, I don't even think he looks at Simon. He just goes, get in the car. Yep. And then they just go and like, take, go. Well, there you go. I didn't even mean to say it. They just like, go and take off. And I love that really. The energy that you're talking about of the Vegas sequence a lot. It's a great call. Number nine for me is wholly 1999, and that is The Blair Witch Project. And here's what I want to say about that. There are better movies to list here. There, there are. That's fine. If you saw this movie in the theater in 1999, you were scared. And I don't give a fuck if 
you don't admit that you are. Maybe you're like some rare breed who doesn't get shooken up, but this is pre-social media, pre-smartphone. These guys convinced a large portion of the world that this was a legitimate found footage movie and that they these three indie filmmakers, amateur filmmakers, had gone out into the woods in Burkittsville, Maryland, which I grew up five miles from, so that was also another weird connection I had. And then they found this footage. I... I kind of, I, I mean, I knew that wasn't real, but the way it was presented, I will never forget seeing this movie and the impact of it. I mean, it changed horror film. It, it just, it just did. It did. We've kind of walked away from found footage, but that's what the world was, that genre for years, for, I mean, a decade and a half almost. And that movie, I mean, they made it for nothing and it made so much money in terms of, you know, the profitability of it. So I, if we're having a 1999 conversation, I have to mention the Blair Witch Project. And it's, I completely agree. I think it's very founded. I think it's, it absolutely changed the game a, a lot for horror. You're right. That movie was a phenomenon when it came out. Like mm-hmm. it, it, I remember seeing it in theaters. When they're in the tent, it just starts, someone like starts moving it and shaking it. Dude, no way. I'm so glad you mentioned that scene. The first time I saw that movie, that scene starts to happen. They book it. They run. Yep. And they're screaming. And then the three of them meet up and they can still hear the screaming and the cracking in the woods. And someone says, what time is it? And you're fucking hoping it's like 5.50, 6 a.m. It's going to be like, and, and they say it's like 3 a.m. or something. And when I saw that, my heart sank and I went, Oh my God, they have to be out here for another three hours in the dark. And that's the, that's the magic of that movie. Absolutely. So next on my list is the winner of 1999, American Beauty. Okay, good call. Say what you will, this is a great fucking movie. And when you say winner, you mean it won the Best Picture Oscar. It won the Best Picture, yes, for the year. Yeah. I think it holds up to this day. I think, I think it's one of those movies that does everything right. I personally kind of find with this movie that uh, this was the movie that taught me what film composition was. Mm -hmm. It it becomes a very elementary thing once you start doing it. But when you don't know anything about scene construction or composition, you don't know what it is. You don't know how it works. Yeah. And particularly the dinner scene, um, both of them, or if there's, they're always shot the same way in the way that they all have dinner together and the way that. The table is set up. Yeah, the straight master, the light behind the roses on the table. Yeah. Which they famously put a little like, yeah, feel like Conrad L. Hall won Best Cinematography. So, yeah, great, great looking movie. And I love Conrad L. Hall. And so that movie was a very, very important movie for me in my education in becoming a filmmaker. Yeah. If we were doing this list in January 2000, then there is no question I would have told you American Beauty was my favorite movie of 1999. It was. That movie meant a lot to me at the time. We have to, of course, kind of touch on that. It's it's a bit of a trickier conversation today. Okay, I mean, there are aspects of the movie that haven't aged well and that are a little weird to watch what Kevin Spacey's, you know, motivations are. So that's acknowledged. And that's, I mean, if you just want to break that movie down to brass tacks, you cannot argue at how flawlessly composed each shot is of that film. Yeah. There was a lot of time that went into it. Sam Mendes was a theater director, so it a lot of the shots look like theater set pieces. I think that's a fair call. It's a good call. It's a it's a film that took on a new life after 2017, and that's the world we live in. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So next on my list is probably going to be 
arguably the most influential movie of the year, The Matrix. You, it's kind of hard to argue against the the impact that movie had. And as always, I like to talk about these things in context. That movie came out in April. No one was talking about that fucking thing. Nope. The preview was cool, but like no one knew what this was. It wasn't based on anything. It was coming from these two directors who had made like it's really kind of cool lesbian crime thriller bound which for my money is still my favorite movie by them that's another subject but then this movie comes out the matrix and it is the definition of a sleeper hit because it doesn't leave theaters it's in there and as the weeks go by more people in school are talking about it it's like it's becoming a thing it wins four oscars which is crazy that people just didn't see coming and then when that damn thing hit dvd i don't know if i knew a person who didn't have it it's a really important movie, and now they're making the fourth one, and I'm, I wasn't the biggest fan of the sequels, but I'm, I'm all in on number four. Bring it the fuck on. We'll see, but let's just talk about, yeah, because because this is my number six, so, um, mm-hmm. so I'll, I'll give my two cents on this movie now. Um, I mean, this movie defined 1999, I think. Yeah. I think when you look at the, the list of movies that came out this year, if you had to pick one to take with you, I would say the majority of people would probably pick this. I agree. Because it still holds up today. It's got a cult following. It's also got a mass like appeal. It's still awesome. It, it looks better than anything that comes out now in terms of the visual effects. Yeah, this movie just, it does, it knows exactly what it is and it does it all right. And um, I saw this movie in the Hollywood Forever Cemetery last year. It was probably one of the first movies that came out and of, of the summer, and it rained. Very few people left. Like, it rained pretty, like, substantially. And um, so to be in the rain while this was going on was pretty cool. That's awesome. What do you got next? All right, so this is my number eight, which is, I'm curious to see if maybe me just switch places on this, because I think this is another movie that defined uh, an era of filmmaking for the year, is uh, Fight Club. Is that your number eight? That's my number eight. That's my number seven. So that's perfect because that was going to be the one I talked about next. So here we go. This is fucking hilarious how like how similar our tastes are. Like it's just I I promise people we have not conferred about this at all. No, it's part of the fun for us. Yeah, it is part of the fun. We haven't. And then sometimes there are movies that like you love that I don't like and that I love that you don't like and it's fine. Anyway, please introduce us to Fight Club. This is one of those movies where it's like people still talk about this movie and I think that this is a movie that it exists only to be its own thing. It, it is like this keg of dynamite that you that it's so delicate and and it, but you can't help but want to play with it. I still to this day cannot believe a studio made that movie and released it a major studio. Yeah, it is so bizarre and out there and so of its own. That's and like the movie Fincher made before the game, which I love, was not a hit. It wasn't. So to give him this much clout and to go, here's X amount of dollars. You got the biggest movie star in the world. So I guess we'll trust you. And they come up with this thing. And we should say very similar to um, The Matrix, like the lead up to Fight Club was not very intense. The movie did not do well in the theaters. No, I saw it opening weekend. It was maybe half full. Saw that with my mom. And when it ended, my mom looked at me and she said, that would have been one of the worst movies I've ever seen if it wasn't for the end twist. 
And that's when I realized that there is going to be a huge difference of opinion in this movie. Yeah. And that movie really wasn't a hit until that tan double disc DVD came out the following spring. And then that movie exploded. Yep. That doesn't happen anymore, but that used to happen when movies could be released on home video and find an entirely new life and then just explode. Because when it came out on DVD, and blue, and on DVD, that's when the kids got a hold of it. Not too many moms were taking their 14-year-old sons like me to go see Fight Club. But when the kids could get a hold of it at home, that's when it blew up into this thing. But You know, what was going on in that time was very rebellious. Yeah. It was very anti-authority. You had the Jerry Springer show. You had South Park. No one had seen anything like South Park. You had this very, very male testosterone driven um feelings towards to fighting to sexuality to uh humor um everything was very raunchy everything was was a very specific way and this movie speaks to it perfectly i think that's why it's a perfect 1999 movie so that was eight for you and that was going to be my next one so why don't you give us your seven so this is a movie that I don't think that you have on your list at all. This is a movie that I don't think anyone would have on their list. I love this movie with all of my heart. Drop Dead Gorgeous. Wow. I was not expecting this. But you know what? Like your clueless call in the last podcast, this is a great call. I have a funny story for you when you're done with your remarks about it. It's one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. And this, is, I mean, this is as lowbrow as it gets. And I personally love lowbrow humor. And this would never be made today. The political correct lines that it crosses, which again, speak to that time. Yes. It's not right. And it's good that this thing, these things have changed, but this was the culture. Mm-hmm. It, it's funny how it changes now because of how wrong it is. So to me, it actually holds up in a way where it's like, I can't believe people were saying this. And it's a movie that knows exactly what it is. All the actors are perfect. The, the fun that they're allowed to have is off the charts. And it's a uh, highly recommend this movie, but just get ready because it's going to, um, it's probably going to piss you off. <laughs> Great call. My story about that is that a few years ago, I was out visiting you and you gave me basically that exact same speech. We were having drinks and you were like, I don't want to go back and force you to watch this, but this is how I feel. And I was like, all right, let's go. All right, let's go back and give it a shot. I I had no idea this movie was like this, and we died. We were just dying, laughing the entire time. And I've watched it. I think that was two years ago, and I think I've watched it three times since then. Like it's just—it's so funny. It's fun, but yes, it is a film of its time. We shall say yes. I think that's a very good pick. Next for me, this movie's not talked about enough still, and it's Three Kings by David O. Russell. Still my favorite David O. Russell movie. So hard not to put this on my list. This is one of those really weird movies that it was so good in such a good year that it just missed the boat on lavish critical praise leading to Oscar nominations. This has an energy and an intensity that I love the way it's shot. It's very gritty. It's very intentional. Like the sound design, the crazy shit with Mark Wahlberg's lung. Yeah. It's exactly what 1999 represented. I still haven't seen shit like that in a movie since. Like, this is why that year is so good. So Exactly. Like, the visual style, for no reason. Like, because like, a lot of that movie doesn't look like that. Right. Just, but it's like, fuck it. Why not? It just fits. So since Matrix was your six, I'll do, I'll jump to my five. And that for me is 
The Limey by Steven Soderbergh, a movie that I love it every time I watch it more and more. It is simply told it's a movie about a guy finds out that his daughter has been killed and he travels to L.A. to get some news like what the hell happened? What's going on? It's a pretty simple story, but what Soderbergh did with it, he spent a year editing it because he did not, it was written in a linear fashion and he did not like the cut of it. There was something missing. And then he edited this damn thing into a very weird mosaic frenzy that somehow works. But I mean, by like minute four of this movie, you're already juggling four or five timelines and you're like, whoa, and you just have to give into it. And it has a superb late Peter Fonda performance that like he's just he's kind of playing Peter Fonda. Yes. Just seeing Peter Fonda like fucking driving on PCH with the top down and his hair blowing. I'm like Soderbergh knew exactly what he was doing in that casting. He knew exactly what he was doing when he was casting Terrence Stamp. It's just I love the limey. Not a lot of people talk about it. It's a, it's a tricky one. It's a complicated edit, but it's only like 90 minutes, maybe less. Great movie. Absolutely. Completely agree. And to your point on Peter Fonda, Peter Fonda has some of my favorite lines ever in that movie. I love when he gets the news that like someone's coming after him. He's like, don't freak out. He goes, I don't freak out anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, what a thing to say. Like, anymore. I don't freak out anymore. Like, I've outgrown freaking out. <laughs> yeah. Give me your five. I'm going to break this one out with um, being John Malkovich. That is my number four. So we are right on the line. That's a great call. Ah. This is hilarious. I think this was one of those movies where it came out on video. Like, as soon as it did, I saw it. To be able to kind of resonate with a movie like this at a younger age it's pretty impactful i had never seen a more creative idea i didn't think movie could do something like this me either i'd never seen it before in a movie i mean i don't even want to say too much about it because if you've never seen it it's it's an important movie to see how you feel about it like like what parts of your imagination and your creativity open up after being exposed to something that this movie does also, if you know me as well as anyone, you know how I feel about the Cuse, John Cusack. He is my boy. Yeah, he is. I love John Cusack, and this is, I think, one of his best performances. I think he is... It's hard to kind of imagine this movie without him. They actually kind of hard movie imagine without anyone. They're all perfect. Your core four there, I don't know. You can make an argument that they've never been better. Cusack, Cameron Diaz, which a lot of people didn't even know at the time that was her. Yeah. Catherine Keener, who was nominated. And I am hard in the camp that John Malkovich has never been better than as John Malkovich. And I love him as an actor, but I think he's great. I mean, God, just the scene with him and Charlie Sheen. Like, one of the things I love that this movie does so well is it doesn't bog itself down in the denial of what's happening because what's happening is inexplicable and it cannot be explained which is the definition of inexplicable great job alex so (laughs) (laughs) if and like none of them harp too long on what the fuck is going on they immediately turn it into either like a fun thing to do or a business opportunity and we're going to talk about this um, in a few minutes, but the fact that Spike Jones was nominated for Best Director, that's right up there with my favorite Oscar nomination ever. That would have never happened five years earlier. It's nuts that that happened, and I love it. Well, since that was my four, why don't you give me your four? Number four, the late Stanley Kubrick, Eyes Wide Shut. 
His last movie. Oh, hell yes. I've always felt about Stanley Kubrick, who is my favorite director, that almost, I would say, 95% of his movies get better with multiple viewings. I think all of them, yeah. The more you can rewatch Stanley Kubrick movies, the more you get out of them. And I don't think there's one truer case for me personally than this movie, because when I first saw it, I was not with it. I mean, I liked the visuals. I liked... Tom Cruise, I liked, I liked a lot, but I was just sogging through it. And I remember it, it, it wasn't until uh, we met, I'm looking through your movies and we're just kind of like picking movies and talking about them. And I got to Eyes Wide Shut and I think I was just so bold to say something negative and you just stopped me. You were like, <laughs> I, I went in, I remember this conversation very well. Yeah. You were like, okay, I am not going to accept anything other <laughs> than anything you're going to say unless you rewatch it. Yeah, that is what, and that's what I like to say to people. If I really, really love a movie and it doesn't sit well with them, especially people like us where our tastes are aligned, I go, I, I basically said like, before you continue down a negative road, watch it again with everything you know in life now, and then go watch it and lean into the artificiality of it all. Lean into the fact that he yep. recreated New York on a London soundstage. I know. That looks gloriously artificial to me. I just love it. So by the story you're telling and the inflection of my voice, maybe people have guessed, this is my number one of 1999. I thought it might be. And this was not the easiest pick because Eyes Wide Shut does not really represent the indie sentiment of 1999 to me. But, oh, I just think it's the most complete film that was made that year. I did see this in 1999 and I did not like it. Because I did not understand any of it, but I thought I understood all of it. Because when you go back and watch it now, like, Nicole Kidman didn't do anything. She just thought about hooking up with this guy. Yep. And then he takes this and goes out and actively tries to cheat on his wife. And it's like, hey, man, let's keep things into perspective here. Like, let's have a little balance. And it just gets so far off the rails. And I'm getting chills talking about it. The Tom Cruise, Sidney Pollock pool scene. I fucking love it so much they shot it so many times it was one of pollock's like first things he shot he wasn't ready for it but just the way pollock eases out like i was there yeah and this movie is a big statement it contains my favorite use of the word fuck in all of film and it contains <laughs> my favorite final movie line of the decade and both of those are the same thing but yeah to your point uh the shining didn't like it really didn't understand it the first time i saw it 2001 uh what what's going on so yeah he has a way of manipulating the craft that is so perfect that i think it takes a few viewings to get what's going on obviously it's my number four so obviously i came around to it i couldn't have been happier to have been more wrong in my first initial viewing of the movie because since then i probably have seen it at least three times yeah so i'll do my three the insider michael mann which again, I know does not lean into the indie sentiment of 1999, but I cannot turn my back on this movie. This is one of my favorite, just mature movie ever made. It's about like old white dudes talking in boardrooms. And that's, and you're like, okay, mm -hmm. when I first saw this in 99, I maybe understood like a few sentences, you know, tortious interference. Like what, what are you talking about? And I, this is what I go to at least once a year it always reveals something new to me. 
I love it. I love that Pacino is being very generous with Russell Crowe, where you're just seeing a star. Again, another star is born. He was great in LA Confidential, but the dude comes alive in The Insider. I mean, I think it is Michael Mann's most mature film. It's not my favorite Mann film. I think it's his most mature. And I think it is, I think in a different year, even a year earlier or a year later, the in, a year later specifically, The Insider has a strong chance of winning picture, director, but as it is now, it got nominated for a lot, and I love it. I love seeing Michael Mann tackle a subject with his same masculine intensity, but there's nothing blowing up. Hey, I agree, and you know, it's interesting you put it that way too, because I saw this movie with my theater professors. In college, we would go over to different theater professors' houses to have like movie watches, and to be able to watch this movie in silence with them... It speaks to exactly the type of movie it is, and I'm imagining that it's probably not an easy get for a lot of people. So you really do kind of have to know that going into it. But if you pay attention to all the subtleties and everything that that movie does, it's very, very powerful. So now you're on number three. So I'm not sure how this movie stacks up with the year of 1999 and what it represents. It might, in a way, because of who the director is... But because this movie is very, very special to me, Bringing Out the Dead. Oh, good call. I was not expecting this. Yeah. This is, I love this movie. Huge storytelling inspiration for me. Um, There was a lot of my short film, There I Go, that was completely modeled off of structural elements of this movie. I love movies where we meet characters for a certain period of time, and then they're gone. And Martin Scorsese. Coming out with a movie that not a lot of people talk about, not a lot of people know about, I don't feel. It's certainly when people talk about Martin Scorsese, this is not a movie that comes up. And, um, you know, speaking of like the indie kind of style of, of 1999, maybe this is Scorsese's kind of indie contribution in a way, because it feels a small, like a smaller indie movie, even though it doesn't, doesn't look it necessarily. It's a dark movie. It's a hard movie to kind of get through, but I love that. In, in my opinion, Nick Cage, very few times do I imagine him better than in this movie. He plays this guy who is just hasn't slept. The scene where he's trying to get time off and the only thing he can do is just bang his arm on the desk. I'm like, what a thing to do. It's weird to me that no one talks about it. It's not... Like you said, when you introduced it, I don't think it's perfect, but it it was, they had a tough time making it. It Last Paul Schrader Scorsese collaboration. I think they had kind of a tough time on it. I don't know what planet Tom Sizemore is on in that movie, but it's not Earth. And he's like, like just gone. And Cliff Curtis, we love Cliff Curtis. He's great. Like it's a, it makes, talking about it makes me want to go rewatch it as soon as we're done. I, I don't think I've checked it out in a few years, but that's a great call. Love this movie. So that was number three for you. Number two for me, Magnolia, Paul Thomas Anderson. Just spent some time talking about it in our favorite LA movies, but this is a crossover because it's a great 1999 movie. It kind of felt like he used the goodwill he got from Boogie Nights, which was big and really out there, and he just pushed it even further, which is crazy. Like, I can't believe they let him make it and release it his own way. Paul Thomas Anderson had kind of famously full autonomy over the movie, which don't, I mean, it was his third movie. Like, you don't really see that much anymore. Yeah. And shout out to Tom Cruise, who gets number two and number one on my list, Magnolia and and Eyes Wide Shut. Two performances that get a career pass for him from me. 
specifically Magnolia, which he's never done anything like before since Tropic Thunder played it was for satire, was for jokes, but this is... Yeah, this is something else. It's very strange to envision a world where Tom Cruise was in a movie and the first time you see him, not on a television screen, but like the first time you see Frank T.J. Mackey in person, I, I cannot believe he did it. But he did it and he went all in. I love the movie. Uh, this is two episodes in a row we're talking about it, so we don't really need to belabor it. But yeah, that's my number two. And then my number one is Eyes Wide Shut, which we've discussed. Oh, wow. So I got two in a row. You do? Well, let me talk about Magnolia. Please, please. Because this was not on my list. And it has nothing to do with the fact that I don't love this movie. I just did not make it. Mm-hmm. But I want to say about it, about Tom Cruise in particular, this is probably my favorite performance from him. And I am very tough on the on the conversation of a movie star versus an actor i think by all accounts tom cruise is probably the biggest movie star in the world like history wise like the the amount of money his movies have brought in but that guy's a fucking actor yeah and this movie is the best example i can give of it because that one take he does when he comes back from the interview where he flips the table. So he comes into that scene after essentially his character's core being shaken. And now he's got to go and do this thing that he does. Watching this character struggle to get through that and then him do what he does. That's as good as acting as you'll ever see. And um, Magnolia is great, but let's move along. So, number two, um, maybe this is going to be interesting for you, um, The Straight Story by David Lynch. Interesting. I'm a sucker for The Hero's Journey. Mm-hmm. The Hero's Journey, I think, is it's the thing that's sort of inherent in me as a storyteller, but I have this desperate desire to fuck with it because I feel like we've seen it a thousand times. It's the oldest story that we know, but this movie does it, in my opinion, in the most simplest of ways. And that's why I love it so much, is because you can't get more simple than this movie. And that's not a bad thing. I'm saying that as a way of, of embracing all of life. Both of my two, my number one and number two have to do with life. Richard Farnsworth, his eyes in this movie Ugh. feel like a life lived. You can see it anytime we are graced with the opportunity of having a close-up on what's going on with him. I get very emotional thinking about the um, magnitude of life and especially reaching it towards the end. I have not come to terms on how I feel about that type of stuff, and I think that's what kind of gets me going Mm -hmm. creatively. And this movie touches on all of it. Like, there's one line he says when he's talking to a bunch of young people. And a guy goes, so what's the, what's the worst part about getting old? And he goes, remembering when you were young. And I was like, oh. No shit. Fuck, man. That just. <laughs> Something to look forward to. God damn it. And, like, and you know that's true. And you hate it and love it. So I have a very, very strong. Um, it's actually my favorite David Lynch movie. Wow. I did not know any of this. I didn't think this would even be mentioned so before you get to your number one i had a whole yeah separate section for the straight story after we were done with our top 10 this is this is just blowing my mind i'm gonna go into this rant now so yeah please 1999 contains two 
of the best, most amazing G-rated fuck yous in all of cinema. Yeah. <laughs> G-rated fuck yous, yes. Up until 1999, both David Lynch and David Mamet had been criticized heavily for their material. General naysayers of their work would say Lynch's films were too weird, too violent, too sexual, too reliant on R-rated flourishes. Mamet's detractors said his work was too reliant on profane dialogue. Okay, so in hearing these criticisms... Lynch went out and made The Straight Story, a G-rated Disney movie about a real-life World War II veteran who rode from Iowa to Wisconsin on a lawnmower for a journey that doesn't need to be said here, but it's a really special, sweet movie for all the things you just mentioned. It was nominated for the Palme d'Or, and Richard Farnsworth was nominated for Best Actor. Similarly, Mamet made The Winslow Boy, a period drama about an honorable family defending a young member of their family after he's accused of a somewhat petty theft. It does not contain a single foul word, and both movies are really well done. And it's these masters kind of proving, like, I don't need to do sex and violence. I don't need to do profane dialogue. Watch this. Yep. And then their next films are Mulholland Drive and State and Maine. So they went right back to being the way they are. But for 1999, both of those Davids gave middle fingers to Hollywood in a way that I love. I had no idea you revered a straight story this much. I really, really like that movie. And I, it's really special. And I, I wish more people saw it. But you see Disney, G, live action. like uh. It throws you. And I get that. I get that reaction. But it earns it. It's just great. And it's David Lynch in an Elephant Man territory. Straight story, nice, simple, clean, great movie. David Lynch is a product of Americana. Look at his movies. There are gorgeous shots of white picket fences with blue skies and bright red roses and blue velvet. That's how that movie fucking opens. Like, this dude loves that side of the world. He loves wholesomeness. He just doesn't really depict it that much. Yeah. All right. Number one, The Green Mile. Wow, I was not expecting that at all. Yeah. Frank Darabont and Stephen King, I kind of feel like their match is made in heaven. Shawshank Redemption, The Green Mile, all based on Stephen King novels. I'm a big Stephen King fan, um, but I like it when he gets into the world of drama a little bit more than horror. Yeah. This movie, to me, when I talk about life and the bigness of life, this movie takes me through everything. In in a very very like emotional ways, like I always kind of like reason like one flew over the cuckoo's nest is one of my is my like number two favorite movie of all time is because it takes me through all the emotions. I kind of really look for that in movies, and this movie does the same. That motherfucking Percy, like I fucking hate him. Yeah. The, what you feel as an audience member when a movie can achieve that, I think that's a very special thing. I, I kind of felt about something with this movie. The emotional ride and the magnitude of life in this movie is Herculean. There's a line that uh, I heard once. If you are really in this journey through life, the journey of life is trying to understand as a human being love and death. I think this movie does a really good job of blurring that understanding because we can never understand truly love and death. We we know it how we know it. We see it how we see it. We'll die with whatever we get from it. Yeah. But this movie really kind of like throws out and raises a lot of questions as to how you feel about that. And it's all done in this little 
fucking jail cell. All right there. Like, uh, I mean, there's there's more to it, but I mean, essentially, this those questions are raised in this little chunk of space. I yeah, Green Mile. I didn't think that would be on your list really at all, and I I love being surprised in that way. That was. It's a really good movie. It was a good 99 movie. I remember seeing that. It was at the end of the year. It left you feeling all right, but it also left you like questioning a lot of stuff and a lot of good movies we talked about. We missed a lot. I mean, there's so many honorable mentions. There's Oh yeah. Virgin Suicides all about my mother, South Park Collection, Sixth Sense, Boys Don't Cry, Summer of Sam, on and on. Varsity Blues. Varsity oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> if we it's not as though we missed some we thought about all of these but yeah yeah it's just kind of the way they landed for us um since we're talking about 99 i want to talk about the oscars because i don't think people remember this as such a big influential year but it really was and here's why leading up to the oscars like the previous years before you had a lot of big epics winning the top prize unforgiven schindler's list forrest gump braveheart the english patient titanic shakespeare in love And then a really weird, off-kilter little indie movie called American Beauty wins Best Picture. I think DreamWorks was really positioning it to win the big five Oscars, picture, director, actor, actress, screenplay, which only three movies have done. With that in mind, I thought it'd be fun briefly, like quickly, to go through each category. I'll list out the nominees and just say if you think they made the right call, and if not, who you would have given it to. Go for it. It's exciting. So picture American Beauty wins. You have Cider House Rules, Insider, Sixth Sense, and Green Mile. For my money, I I understand why American Beauty won. If I'm voting today, I'm voting for the Insider probably, which is crazy, but I probably am. Uh, Yeah, I could see like American Beauty winning being good, but if I had to pick, I'd pick Green Mile. Yeah, and that's uh, totally fair. Sam Mendez, director. Sam Mendez wins for American Beauty. Uh, Lasse Hallstrom for The Cider House Rules, Spike Jones for Being John Malkovich, Michael Mann, The Insider, M. Night Shyamalan, The Sixth Sense. Jones gets mine <laughs> easily. Oh, I don't know, man. That's a tough one. I don't know if I can pick. Yeah, and that's fair. Actor Kevin Spacey wins for American Beauty, as a, as some had predicted, although Russell Crowe for The Insider and Denzel Washington for The Hurricane were kind of somewhat sneaking up. And then you also had Richard Farnsworth for Straight Story and Sean Penn for Sweet and Lowdown. This is tough. Um, I'm one of the few people I know who loves The Hurricane. I really do like that movie. Great movie. Good shout out, 99 Hurricane. Yeah, I'm probably voting for Crowe on this, I guess. Yeah. I gotta go with Farnsworth. Actress. This was the big surprise. Hillary Swank for Boys Don't Cry beat Annette Bening for American Beauty, effectively halting American Beauty's big five. Sweep. You also had Janet McTeer for Tumbleweeds, Julianne Moore for The End of the Affair, and Meryl Streep for Music of the Heart, uh, which was directed by Wes Craven, for those who don't know. Um, This is really Swank versus Bening. This is tough. This is tough, because knowing what we know now, Bening still doesn't have an Oscar. Swank has two. I have no problem with Swank winning. I wish Annette Bening had an Oscar, though. That's what I'll say. Yeah, I feel the same way. I think, you know, Swank winning is the right call. Sporting actress Angelina Jolie wins for Girl Interrupted. Then you have Tony Collette for The Sixth Sense. Katherine Keener, which being John Malkovich. Samantha Morton, Sweet and Lowdown. Chloe Sevigny, Boys Don't Cry. You know who should have been nominated? Who? (laughs) Tell us. Helen Bottom Carter for Fight Club. Really? I was going to say Julian, it's Julianne Moore from Magnolia, any woman from Magnolia. 
I don't know. This is tough. I don't have any problem with Angelina Jolie winning. Uh, I love Tony Collette as the mom in Sixth Sense. I love Catherine Keener. I love Chloe Sevigny. I'm going to go with Keener if I had to pick. Cool. Um, original screenplay, American Beauty wins. You also have Being John Malkovich, Magnolia, The Sixth Sense, and Topsy Turvy, a great like Mike Lee film we haven't mentioned yet on the podcast. Great 99 movie. I love Mike Lee. Love Topsy Turvy. I got to go with Being John Malkovich. <sighs> But Paul Thomas Anderson still doesn't even have a fucking Oscar. It's so weird. Like, what world are we living I in? Know. If I voted then, I... Well, no, if I voted then, I definitely would have voted for American Beauty because I was obsessed with it. But yeah, Malkovich would get my vote today. Adapted screenplay and supporting actor don't have good results for me, but that's okay. Adapted screenplay, The Cider House Rules wins. You also have Election, The Green Mile, The Insider, Talented Mr. Ripley, finally. I'm probably voting for... Uh, election, honestly. Or Ripley. I think I'd give it to Election. Supporting actor. We have Michael Caine winning for the Cider House Rules. He had won a few years earlier for Hannah and Her Sisters. Supporting actor. He beats four people who still never won. Tom Cruise, Magnolia. Your boy, Michael Clark Duncan, The Green Mile. Jude Law for Ripley. Haley Joe Osment for Sixth Sense. My vote goes to Cruise, but Michael Caine gives one of the all-time great Oscar speeches for this award, and it kind of makes it worth it. He dedicates it to the other four performers and says such nice things about them. It's a classy move. Fucking Michael Caine, man. I'm fine with you winning just for that speech. Like, you gotta love Caine. He's just great. But who do you pick? I, I, I gotta go with Cruz. Yeah. I mean, it's... Supporting actor is really the only, like, sentimental award of those that we called out. It was a pretty risky year for movies moving on really quickly before we get to the end i teased in the last episode that we could kind of have a little crossover between our favorite la movies made in 1999 i found three all of which we mentioned which are magnolia go and the limey if i'm going to pick one out of those well because it didn't make my list that would be magnolia all right we've run run a little long again we appreciate everyone listening let's quickly burn through what are you watching i'm gonna go with sex lies and videotape from steve by steven soderbergh it's DIY indie sentiment really helped pave the way for the greatness we saw in 1999. Um, again, this film won a hotly contested Palme d'Or over Do the Right Thing, which is a movie that deserves to be watched anytime for any reason. But today it's sex lies for me. All right. Sticking on to on theme, I'm going to break a lot of my rules, if, especially if you listen to the uh, L.A. podcast. But the movie I'm going to recommend for what are you watching is South Park, the musical. Bigger, longer and uncut. This is my one exception. There's always an exception to everything, to my feeling about musicals. This movie is just, I, I love it. It's hilarious. It's hilarious. I saw it with my mom, and I've never heard my mom laugh louder yeah, or harder. You just had to. If you didn't laugh, you would have been in complete hell, so you have to give yourself <laughs> yeah. over to it. But um, That was great. That was a lot of fun. 1999. Hopefully we made a dent on it. As always, thank you for listening, and happy watching. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. You can check out my flicks and my movie blog at alexwithrow.com. NicholasDostal.com is where you find all of Nick's film work. Nicholas Ali does the music for our show. I've made a few music videos with Nick. He's a great guy and we love his tunes. Big thank you to him. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at whatareyouwatchingpodcast at gmail.com. 
Next time, we're going to do our most in-depth deep dive yet and discuss every performance by the great Sir Daniel Day-Lewis. Big episode. Stay tuned. What the hell are we talking about? Oh, 1999. Okay, that's right. What the hell is this? Who's this from? What the hell is this? All right. He kept cutting me off. Um... What's that from? That's Mystic River. He kept cutting me off. Let's <laughs> reel it in here. Quoting Mystic Jeez. River. <laughs> yeah, from like a bit character on the bridge. It's when you meet yeah. Lawrence Fishburne and Kevin Bacon. That guy's like, he kept cutting me off. And Lawrence Fishburne just goes something like he's digging his grave deeper. Or, I don't know, something like that. Who the fuck quotes bit players from, from Mystic River? <laughs> All right. Yeah, me. I think that should go in there. You should start it off and then be like, 1999. <laughs>